Welcome to the Peds Ethics Podcast, where we talk to leaders in pediatric bioethics about a hot topic or current controversy. Here's your host, John Lantos, from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is John Lantos with the Pediatric Ethics Podcast, coming from Children's Mercy, Kansas City. We talk about ethical issues in pediatrics every week or two and bring in guests. We are thrilled today to have Dr. Phoebe Danziger, who's a general pediatrician at the University of Michigan. Uh, Before that, she was a Fulbright Scholar in Stockholm, Sweden from 2007 to 2008. Learned a lot about the Nordic model of medical care. She's a creative writer, a, a fabulous photographer, and has been writing some provocative pieces about some of the ethical issues that are arising as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Danziger. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So in an op-ed in the New York Times on July 9th, you started with this provocative question. If a vaccine for coronavirus became available tomorrow, will you take it? Why would people not take a coronavirus vaccine? As a general pediatrician, vaccine hesitancy, you know, is something I've been <laughs> wringing my hands about for many years. Um, you know, we frequently see families who are, you know, concerned about vaccines for a variety of reasons and, you know, sometimes choose not to give them to their children. We seem to be seeing some of these same concerns and questions pop up when, you know, parents are starting to think about the idea of a possible future coronavirus vaccine. Um, so in, you know, sort of recent weeks to months, you know, I've started to have families bring this up as a topic during visits. And, you know, what I'm finding is that, um, uh, you know, certainly there are some families where, you know, I would expect some hesitancy or concerns because, you know, in general, in the past, they've had sort of questions or concerns about other vaccines. But what's been really interesting to me is that I've had a lot of families who, you know, typically don't question the the routinely recommended vaccines, have gotten their children immunized, you know, according to the recommended schedule, but are having really, you know, serious concerns about the idea of a coronavirus vaccine. So that's what got me thinking about sort of writing, writing this article and... What sort of concerns do they raise with you? I would say there's a wide a wide range, which has also been interesting. Um, you know, for many families, there are questions about how we could possibly ensure the safety of a vaccine that is being developed on you know what seems to be an accelerated timeline. Um, for some families, there are sort of still sort of similar questions about you know the potential safety or side effects of different vaccine ingredients you know so some of the preservative are adjuvants that we typically use in vaccines. Um, for other families, it is more of a sort of a nebulous theoretical set of concerns um, which uh, sort of span uh, sort of a broad spectrum but you know ranging from uh, 
so you know some families have sort of more fringe concerns i would say about you know with the idea of whether there will be a microchip implanted in a coronavirus vaccine um you know and some some folks really believe this and worry about this um you know for others it's you know again sort of more theoretical and um uh, you know just as we've seen sort of you know wearing face masks become a very political topic you know so so it is with vaccines and so for some families there does seem to be sort of concern about is there going to be a mandatory policy and just sort of categorical sort of opposition and hesitancy to, you know, the idea of a vaccine, regardless of what type of vaccine it is or what the what the data ends up looking like. So I know it's got to be hard to generalize, but is there one particular group of patients? Is it more well-educated, less educated, white, black? What's been interesting in hearing from from these families is that it really seems to uh, sort of encompass a, a really broad demographic and, you know, families and, you know, individuals of all sorts of different backgrounds. And I think to some extent, you know, that really parallels what we've seen with vaccine hesitancy in general, where, you know, initially it did start out, you know, uh, sort of as a phenomenon primarily that existed amongst sort of, uh, you know, more well-educated, wealthy Caucasian families. But, you know, in the the intervening years, it's really spread to, to encompass a much broader demographic and you know there are there certainly seem to be sort of patterns and trends you know with respect to what the specific concerns are or what's sort of driving the hesitation uh, or concerns uh, you know sort of based on different demographic factors um but it, it does seem to be something that's you know coming up for a, a lot of different people with different backgrounds and I know you've written about disagreements between pediatricians and parents, uh, both about vaccines and about some routine preventive treatments like vitamin K for newborns. How do you as a pediatrician try to convince parents uh, that medically the treatments that you think are medically be beneficial ought to be used for their child? To some extent, um, you know, when you're thinking about it on sort of an individual level and, you know, sort of direct doctor, you know, patient family interactions, um, uh, you know, it's, it's relatively straightforward in the sense that, you know, you want to offer you know, evidence-based sort of sound information and, you know, try to do so in a compassionate and non-judgmental way, um, uh, you know, focusing on, uh, you know, establishing trust with families and, you know, really trying to, you know, get a sense from them of, you know, who are they? What are their values? What are their fears? What what do they want for their children? You know, most families want to do what's best for their children and are motivated by, you know, good intentions in, in that regard. And so trying to just have, you know, sort of honest and uh, open and empathetic conversations, you know, about sort of what's, you know, what's behind their hesitancy and, and going from there. What concerns me is that while, you know, I think that's you know, the right approach on an individual level. I think what we've seen with vaccine hesitancy in general over the past, you know, few decades is that on a broader level, that doesn't really seem to work, you know, and certainly, you know, I, I would say most, you know, pediatricians or physicians can, you know, think of examples of times where, you know, their, their counseling and, you know, sort of, you know, work on an individual level maybe has, you know, convinced a family to change their mind and to accept a vaccine or a particular recommendation. You know, I've certainly had 
you know, experiences like that, and it feels good and satisfying. And, uh, you know, there's, again, certainly, you know, lots of evidence that for many Americans, you know, they, they do still turn to, you know, their physicians or healthcare providers as a source of trusted information about these things. But again, there is a, a you know, non-trivial sort of portion of the population for whom I don't think this is necessarily true. And, you know, for whom vaccines and sort of similar preventive types of interventions, uh, you know, have become, you know, it's become much more of a sort of cultural issue and a political issue and a real. Um, with the coronavirus vaccine, assuming it comes along pretty soon, it will be largely untested. So are there special issues in the context of a raging pandemic that's around an untested vaccine? How do we convince people that the benefits of this outweigh the risks? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question and it's tough. I mean, I think any individual vaccine certainly is going to need to be evaluated on the basis of its individual merits and taking a look at at the data and um, sort of going from there. Um, you know, when you think about sort of vaccine policy, you know, certainly, um, uh, you know, I would say there is, you know, more broad consensus that, uh, you know, more sort of mandatory compulsory type, you know, approaches or policies are more ethically defensible and justifiable in the setting of active outbreaks or epidemics. And so, you know, I think that certainly comes into into play here. Um, to some extent, you know, I think it, it is a sort of a moral question that we're going to have to grapple with, you know, as individuals and as a, a society of, you know, how how do we approach, you know, the the aspect of sort of unknown risk and the fact that we're not going to have years and years of safety data to point to. You know, I think if, you know, depending on the type of vaccine that ends up becoming available, if it is something that closely parallels, you know, other vaccines that we currently have, you know, then I think that is an easier conversation. But if we are incorporating, you know, some of the newer technologies that, you know, are being tested as well, then I think that's more challenging. Have you given any thought to what will happen if more than one type of vaccine is approved at the same time? Yeah, you know, I think we're going to have to sort of take it as it comes. And again, you know, just evaluate the, the individual vaccines, you know, based on their particular merits and sort of go from there. So I think, you know, it's hard because a lot of this is sort of theoretical right now. Um, the studies are uh, just starting the phase three studies of vaccines. And I know uh, our hospital is participating and uh, we got sent uh, a link to a website to sign up if we were willing to enroll in the clinical trial. Have you gotten any such emails? I just saw um, in the, the local news that um, a one of the Michigan hospitals is participating as a, a site in a vaccine trial. Um, I have not yet followed followed the links to, to investigate further, but um, yep, that certainly seems to me. Would you sign up for a trial? Oh, I, I absolutely would. Yes, I, I. Yeah. Yeah, I trust the process. I trust the. I trust the science. Um, so I would. <laughs> and it sounds like you trust the review process, then, so that when a vaccine gets approved, you'd likely follow whatever recommendations are for indications and contraindications. 
I would say most likely. You know, I think one of the concerns that some families have been raising, which I think is a a really valid concern, is, you know, what is the role of sort of political pressure and political influence right now, you know, with all of this, you know, from sort of vaccine development, you know, testing, approval, all of that. Um, So, uh, you know, again, I think it's it's a bit hard to say now because it's it's theoretical, but um, you know, in general, yes, I think I trust the I trust the process, I trust the the science, um, but that is that is a concern. So you've also been writing about uh, other aspects of trying to flatten the curve and about how those play into trust in politics or the culture wars. What are your general thoughts about how we're doing as a country and what we can do differently, perhaps, to flatten the curve or get ahead of this thing? Yeah, I you know I think there are a couple approaches that we might want to look at. Um, you know, some sort of related to you know vaccines and interventions, and some sort of taking a more big picture view. Um, you know, one of the things that has been a source of frustration for me over recent years, sort of watching vaccine hesitancy in general prior to the pandemic unfold is, you know, feeling like with our current approaches, we have not been making a lot of headway. And so I think, you know, it's time to step back and try to think about it a little bit differently. And I think this is relevant for, you know, vaccine hesitancy in general, for, you know, vaccine hesitancy related to a coronavirus vaccine, and for, you know, like you were saying, a lot of, um, you know, the other measures that, you know, we're trying to take that are supported by sort of public health, you know, evidence with respect to flattening the curve. Um, You know, I think there are so many sort of deep underlying, you know, cultural, political, economic issues that are contributing to, you know, some of these sort of downstream, you know, expressions of sort of discontent or concern, um, you know, with respect to, you know, individual interventions or recommendations and how people are grappling with those. And I think until we really, you know, take a look at those upstream factors, which, you know, is hard to do, but until we really take a look at those and address those, I'm not sure we're going to be able to make a lot of headway with the more the more downstream things. One last topic. Uh, I know we're covering a lot of ground here, so thank you for doing this. But you have school-aged children at home, and uh, we're moving into August here. What is happening with the schools in your area, and how are you thinking about what to do with your own kids? Oh my goodness! Yep. So we have um, <laughs> we have four kids ranging from uh, almost three to eleven. So spanning sort of preschool up through entering middle school. Um, so it's been um, a real a real conundrum trying to think about how to handle this. The local public uh, school district in Ann Arbor has recently announced that. Um, we will be returning all virtual for the beginning of the year and for the foreseeable future. Um, so that has <laughs> thrown thrown a wrench into into things. Um, so yeah, right now just trying to get get a sense of, of how how can we balance working and you know sort of supporting our children's education at various levels, you know, with um, you know what for the foreseeable future is going to be a, a fully virtual virtual sort of remote option. So it's um, it's a challenge. And that's Ann Arbor. Is the state of Michigan uh, also going all online or is it district by district? It's district by district for now. We have 
not heard any sort of statewide guidance yet on that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, we're, we're all sort of waiting, waiting to hear what other what other districts decide and, you know, if they're going to, there's going to be more firm guidance on the, the state level. Any other thoughts on uh, issues that have arisen in your general PEDS practice or in your family or just as a good citizen that we haven't talked about? Yeah, so, you know, going back to the the vaccine issues, you know, I think another idea that I've been thinking about and which I proposed in the, the New York Times piece is this idea of a green vaccine. Um, you know, to some extent, I think maybe it's a, a little bit cynical to approach it this way, but also maybe a little bit practical. And, you know, again, you know, over the years, a lot of, you know, the concerns that I hear from families about vaccines, about vitamin K for babies, about, you know, other interventions really focuses on the ingredients and the safety of those ingredients. And for a lot of families, it, you know, you can talk until you're blue in the face about the data, the, you know, the safety data, you know, the, uh, you know, you can sort of go around and around with that, but it does not seem to quell, you know, some families' fears. And so I think, you know, not from a medical standpoint, not from a scientific standpoint, but from a social standpoint, you know, I think we might need to start listening to that a little bit more and, you know, think about are there ways that we can, you know, design these interventions, whether it's a vaccine, you know, or something else, but in a way that is potentially more palatable, more acceptable to, to people so that they'll be more likely to, to accept them. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by green vaccine. You know, a lot of families, you know, have concerns about the different sort of ingredients that are common in, you know, our routine childhood immunization. So some of the things that we use as preservatives or adjuvants to to sort of, you know, boost the immune response. Um, you know, some of these are things like benzyl alcohol or, you know, other other sorts of ingredients that, um, you know, a lot of families will sort of Google these ingredients or, you know, um, look up information about them on, you know, social media forums and they get really scared because of what they see. Um, you know, there is robust safety data regarding, you know, most or all of these, you know, ingredients and in the amounts, you know, in which they are used in, in vaccines, you know, we are very confident that they are safe. Um, but, you know, this is something that just comes up again and again and again. And families, you know, some families, it doesn't matter how much sort of evidence there is, how much data there is, they, they just are not reassured by it that. Um, so, you know, I am not a virologist. I, I don't, you know, develop vaccines myself. But, you know, I do think there is sort of an, un, an untapped opportunity here for thinking about, you know, thinking about it in a different way and saying, okay, families are concerned about these ingredients, you know, we, we know they're safe, but, you know, families are declining vaccines because of them. Are there other ways that we can design these products that, you know, where they will be equally effective, but parents will be, you know, more, more likely to accept accept them. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but. But I love what you put in your July 9th New York Times op-ed about green vaccines. And I'm quoting here, it should be made in a factory in a city or town that can be easily identified and come with accessible information about development, testing, and monitoring rather than an inscrutable insert. Those are the things that a lot of uh, pediatricians, I think, don't think about so much, but as a matter of public policy, may go a long way to 
increasing the likelihood that people will trust and use a new vaccine. Thank you so much for talking with us. We've been talking to Phoebe Danziger, a general pediatrician at uh, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, a mother of four and a writer and photographer. Thanks so much for taking the time. This was fascinating. Thank you for having me. This was yeah a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And this is the Pediatric Ethics Podcast from Children's Mercy in Kansas City. Thanks for listening.